We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message at 905-529-7165. Don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good, morning, Good to Scott. see you all. Welcome to April. We're all here. Yeah. Have you seen any flowers sprouting up yet? The tulips? Uh, yes, there's, there's something green happening in the garden. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh-oh. Not sure what it is yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> probably weed it's come a, up first it's a new world <laughs> uh we're going to talk about the cost of fear yeah it's interesting you know in our in our business if we have a, a file that you know for whatever reason if a client passes away we have to keep it for seven years mm-hmm. or if a client leaves us we have to keep the file for seven really years. yeah so i stashed a whole bunch of stuff in the basement and and my wife was on a big spring cleaning binge this past week. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, okay, so as she was going to have them all shredded, I pulled, I, I said, oh, let me take a quick look just for interest's sake. And I said, oh, yeah, that one passed away or that one moved away or whatever the case was. Oh, this client. And this was a client's interesting enough. I got as a client in 1988. Wow. And she had been a long-term client and uh, she had gone through the recession in 1990. Mm-hmm. So 1990 to 92, the markets dropped. It was a a pretty good fall in that couple of years. Certainly the real estate fell. It was, again, a good recession as we have every so often. Then she also went through the tech meltdown in 1998 and 1999, followed quickly by Y2K. Yeah. So kind of memory lane. And, you know, it's unfortunate. Um, I met them. You know, I met her soon after she was a widow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So soon after her husband passed away. And has been was a long term client, so she was a client until March the fifth, two thousand and nine. Mm-hmm. You couldn't have got much worse to oh, decide yeah, to take yeah, your money out. Yeah. I think it was March 9th was the low. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah, March 9th. So she was five days from the absolute bottom of the market, and decided from the advice of a person at the bank who had their CFP and was considered an investment and retirement planner. <clears throat> And so the local bank said, you should take all your money out. It's way too risky. And I, she called me and I said, okay, your money is not too risky. I know you're, she was 70 years old at the time. Yeah. And I've changed a couple of the, um, you know, details here Mm -hmm. just for privacy reasons, but assuming she was 70 years old and her portfolio was 60% equities, 40% fixed income meaning 40% of it was already in things that paid interest and had really little to do with the stock market. Mm-hmm. And for that matter, of the 60%, about a third of that, 20% of it, was in dividend fund. So dividend fund is basically, funny enough, it's in mainly in bank shares, banking utility companies. And it at the time was about 65 to 70% in bank and utility companies at that time. Mm-hmm. So here's a bank saying this is too risky. Meanwhile, <laughs> the biggest holding is in banks. Mm-hmm. But so this, this, and I can understand there was a ton of fear. If you had to rewind back then, the media was having, it was basically a play-by-play on <coughs> CNN. We used to call CNN constant negative news back mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. because kind of like right now where anytime you turn on the CNN or, or whatever, you're looking for what's Trump doing these days. Yeah. Okay. Back then it was what are the markets doing? And so her portfolio had dropped. And January 1st, 2008, her money was worth Mm $313,000. So at the beginning of the year, $313,000. By the end of 2009, 
Um, and now she was pulling out some money every month. And it was about a thousand, that particular year was 500 a month. Mm-hmm. But it was worth $256,000 by the end of 2009. So, so for in the one year, and I, I apologize, it was January 1st, 2009 um, to, sorry, to January 1st, 2008 to December 31st, 2008. So in one year, one year, it went down $51,000 mm. is what the market had dropped. It was about a 16% loss. Now, the markets did way worse than that because she had a lot on fixed income. Unfortunately, there's a lot of panic going on then. Yeah. And it had a little bit of a reprieve and the market started sliding again. And by March 5th, this particular client could not take it any longer mm-hmm. and started asking questions to probably, you know, went to the bank and said, what do you think? And showed to the portfolio. And of course the bank said it was too risky. Mm-hmm. This happened to a number of clients back then. Mm-hmm. She wasn't the only one. Fortunately, most didn't cash in because mm-hmm. you only, you only crystallize a loss when you sell. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm going to show you. What was the cost of this fear this, that was driving her to finally say this is enough. Mm-hmm. So on March 5th, 2009, it was now worth 231000 So it dropped another $24,000. Mm-hmm. And all you see is a sliding slope. Yeah. You know, you put yourself in this sure. 70-year-old lady. This is her life savings. This is all she's got. She has to have an income. It's now down 24% from the peak on January 1st, 2008 to March 5th, 2009. Now the markets were down 57% mm-hmm. from peak to trough. It was a huge meltdown. And I remember 2000 and, um, that around the March 5th, 2009, there was one page all in black. The front page was all black mm-hmm. with, white, with white lettering mm-hmm. saying no end in sight, mm-hmm. basically, playing on the fears of everybody and the market was going to continue to continue to drop. Right. So I was saying, I was curious. I said, well, just out of curiosity, what would have happened had she had not gone to the bank and just wrote it out? Mm-hmm. So had she left it at, at the bank and, and I made a really high assumption that she could have made 2% because she was moving at all the GICs. There's no way they're paying 2%. Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the GICs are paying barely over 1%, if any. Mm-hmm. If you locked up for five years, you got 1.2%. Mm-hmm. So I gave her benefit of the doubt, 2%. It turns out that had she left it alone and not touched a thing right until um, today, she would have got 7.4% hmm. by not moving it. And so had she left it there and not taken an income from it, her portfolio would have grown from the 231000 to 274000 and had she just left it there and not taken any income from it, it would have been worth 439000 a difference of 165000 Now, that's not feasible either because this lady has to have an income. Yeah. That's the whole point of this money was to give her a very conservative income. But unfortunately, there was nothing conservative in that period of time. Everything went down. Yeah. And that's why there was such a rebound shortly after because, you know, the banks weren't we're doing very well. Canadian mm-hmm. banks did great, mm-hmm. but they also dropped in 50%, the Canadian banks back then. So had she continued to take her 1000 a month? She was, and generally she was 500 a month, but then there would always be a car repair or a home mm-hmm. renovation. So there always seemed to be another 6000 a year she would have to pull out for different, for different expenses. So that 1000 a month, her NAR portfolio would have gone down from 231000 down to 156000 so right now, she would be sitting there, at, if she got 2%, with $156,000 um, in her GIC portfolio. 
had she left it alone, it'd be worth 296000 hmm. even pulling out the 1000 a month. Yeah. So she would have 60000 more than she started back and almost recovered all the way back to January 1st, 2008, which was 313. So she would be ahead by 140000 Now, having said that, this is nine years later and she's 89 years old. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, you know, she may have she may have passed away by now. Yeah. I was curious, what happened if she lived to age 94? Because certainly a 70-year-old, a, a to make it to 94 isn't mm-hmm. beyond the realm. You know, yeah. you, um, longevity risk is the biggest. Mm-hmm. And we've often said that the higher the risk, um, there's a lot higher risk by not earning a good return. If right. you're only making 2%, there's a risk there. So I worked it out. At age 94, her money runs out. She has no money at all. Had she left it in the portfolio and only earned 4.5% from now till whenever. So even though the portfolio did make 7.4 until, 7.4 until now, I'm just, let's just assume it only goes four and a half from here on in. Mm-hmm. So I'll take another 3% off the rate of return it has been earning. It's just assuming, because it is pretty safe. It's a safe portfolio. Her portfolio at age 94 would have been $324,000. So the cost of fear would have been running out of money at age 94. The estate would not have, her kids would not have $324,000 had they just kept it as they were. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't mm-hmm. have, a, and, and this did not include any inflation because over time, 1000 a month may not have been enough. Mm-hmm. She may have needed a little bit more. So inflation risk is in there. This also didn't include the fact that interest earned during this time, she would have had to pay a lot higher tax on it because she had a lot of dividend income before. So even though she was making 2%, even at the lowest tax rate, she would lose 0.4% to tax. So she really was only going to make 1.6%. I didn't even include that. Um, And her 7.4% would have been virtually tax-free because dividend income in the the lower tax bracket, you can make over 40,000 a year and not pay any tax on dividends. So didn't use tax, didn't look at inflation, simply looked at at uh, net return, just 2% versus 7.4. And that's what it actually did, 7.4%. We actually back-tested it, went on Morningstar, which is a third-party site, put the actual portfolio back together and said, what would it be worth now? And it would have done 7.4%, which isn't out of the ordinary, because mm-hmm. had you been 100% equities, it would have been over 11%. But because she was a 60-40 split, you know, her, her return would have been slightly less. So at the end of the day, this person at the at the bank that you know she trusted mm-hmm. gave her her advice or his advice whoever gave the advice was to be a hundred percent GICs because of your age yeah and literally scared her out of three hundred twenty four thousand hmm. dollars so I'm sure Andy you may have come across situations where they pulled money out at that time well it, it's again we're coming back to the fear and greed factor right and uh, and so many times we're motivated and the and as we've said before, fear is twice as powerful as the uh, as, as winning. Yes. <laughs> so mm. uh, the greed side is okay, but the fear dominates us so many times in our decision process. And 
And it's tough. I think, you know, the key things that help people stay the course are having a, a, a solid financial plan so that you can refer back to that and say, okay, what were we supposed to do here? What was supposed to be our reaction in a period of, uh, mm. of stock market instability? And, um, and obviously just understanding someone's risk tolerance and making sure they understand their investments. And one of the things that we'll talk about is something called standard deviation. And really what we're trying to do is explain to somebody, how much could your portfolio go down or how much can it go up mm. in a given year on average? so that you attain that 7.4%. So it, in fact, to get 7.4%, you probably will have to endure a year where it could go down 15%. Do some, when defi- devising a plan, not realize that, yeah, there's going to be bumps in this. It's not yeah, always going to keep they continuing. They need to be reminded, and particularly and shown that. They've that, gone yeah. in a straight line, <clears throat> yeah, right? Yeah. The markets have done nothing but gone up recently, so it's easy for people suddenly again to see the cycle happen mm-hmm. where we're now getting in late, and, uh, and, and the next fall, which comes unexpectedly, mm. you know, now you're feeling like you got to get out. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now and leave a message. They will return your call, 905-529-7165, and check out the website at andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now, leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. That's 905 905- 529-7165 and don't forget to check out the website at andyanddon.com that's andyanddon.com talking about high net worth estate planning yeah and, and as Don and I have met with clients over the years and as you see people's wealth begin to grow and they sort of move into that high net worth category and the issues around estate planning really start to evolve and become obviously more critical and so we sort of I wanted to pull together some of the key key options observations around high net worth estate planning uh, that Don and I run into. And also, um, I, I reached out to our resources at our head office. We have our, our estate or a TEP, Trust and Estate Practitioner, Christine Van Cowenberg, who's one of our um, lead uh, lead estate planning uh, consults in our advanced financial planning department at head office. And uh, so she she shared some thoughts with me as well, too, on, on cases that she's run across that kind of make the points that we're trying to uh, mm-hmm. get across as well. So in talking with high net worth clients today, there's sort of two big concerns. The first one is they're concerned about their children getting a large inheritance, Mm. right? And really this comes down to their capacity. So what is their capability and their capacity to be able to handle a large sum of money? Would they be able to prudently manage that money? Would they seek professional help? Um, There's fears about um, substance abuse or children perhaps that aren't managing money well Mm. and the the, the writing's on the wall. Can you you put guidelines in for that? Or or once, once the money's handed over, is it out of your hands? Yeah, so this is where the concerns come from, obviously, is what do you do with that? How do you insulate them from it? Or what can you do to protect them? But clearly, this becomes one of the biggest concerns is uh, the fact that they're getting a large inheritance, and will they have the capacity to handle it? And the second thing is they're concerned about their children getting a large inheritance because of the family property claim. So in case of a marriage breakdown, Mm. a separation, a divorce, uh, what will happen to that large inheritance in terms of the family property claim? Uh, and, and would it be, would half of the, half of the money from their legacy right. be gone to, uh, an ex son or daughter-in-law? Uh, 
And then universally in asking all high net worth clients about the age uh, at which somebody should get this, uh, their, their inheritance all agreed that 18 was too young. Now, 18 is the age of majority, mm-hmm. so they're no longer considered a minor. They can manage mm-hmm. their own affairs, and certainly yeah. they would be, um, in, the, in the eyes of the courts, be capable of, uh, of receiving the money uh, in absence of any kind of trust arrangement. If you die, they're 18, and you've said that in your will, boom, it's theirs, and yeah. away they go. Uh, so that's obviously a big, a big uh, concern, too. And this is why one thing that when talking to Christine, too, is you want to never never or be discouraged to create a direct beneficiary to a minor child. Hmm. So what we mean by that is that if you're adding to your tax-free savings account, your RIF, your RSP, even life insurance, a beneficiary as a minor, be very, very careful. There's a lot of trips and traps, tips and traps you need to think about in terms of doing that. So it's funny, but you start to ask people then, well, what age is appropriate for someone to receive a lump sum? And uh, so in talking with high net worth clients whose children are still young, say 10 or under, well, we all think, well, by the time they're 25, they'll be great. They'll be educated. They'll be in great shape. Yeah, if they got the money at 25, I think that would make sense. Well, then you talk to high net worth clients whose children are in their 20s. <laughs> <laughs> and the possibility that in the next couple of years they could be receiving, mm. you know, a million plus or more. Uh, well, maybe they're not so good or ready to receive that kind of money yet. They still have a lot of uh, a lot of learning to do and a lot of experience, life experience to figure out as well in terms of managing money. So, um, so that sort of becomes once they're aged in their twenties. Now it seems like well, age thirty might be a better idea. So this is kind of a moving target. What age does it make sense for them to receive this money? And uh, so this has lent itself to the vast majority of people are choosing a staggered or a staged inheritance. Mm -hmm. So under the staged giving, uh, an example might be they get uh, a quarter at age 25, uh, half at age 30, and the balance at age 35. Or you could make it 21, 25, 30, you know, you pick the numbers. Uh, And again, the older your children are and they're depending on their capacity, you know, you might have some different rules for each one, but so if you Can you do it different ages for different kids? Like yeah, one gets it at 25, yes, the other one only gets it, it doesn't get it till 55. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they, they have to write a test. The other, yeah, one, exactly. the other one I'm bypassing altogether. <laughs> That's right. It's going, it's going straight. right to the grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you had a million dollars, if you're, if you're expecting to give a million dollars plus, uh, as an example to your children, under that scenario, the stage, the quarter would be 250 grand right away at age 25. The one half at age 30 uh, would be about 375. And then the balance at age 35 would be another 375 plus the growth. So this is kind of like the three strike rule, mm. right? You get what first strike, eh, if you blow it, second strike, you blow it, third strike, you got one final chance yeah. to, uh, to make this hit a home run for sure. And, um, you know, and, and it's not just, but you're right, it's not just age 22 year olds that we're concerned about or age 18 year olds. Uh, we were talking with, and Christine was sharing the story about an 88 year old who was doing her estate planning and she was, she doesn't trust her 60 year old son. Yeah. So to handle the money. Mm. So, so we've got, it doesn't matter what age you are. Sure. If you're not good with finances, you're still not good with finances, yeah. I guess at the end of the day. Um, and another example in a file, you know, we're seeing a lot of, um, uh, and this is particularly in the 80s, but people really not sure. You know, the example was that this 80-year-old uh, um, had a single uh, a son 
who was a successful, is a successful brain surgeon in the United States, and he's in his late 40s, single, never been married. But terrible with money. Financially <laughs> successful. Oh, yeah. good. So making all kinds of money and doing well with it. Yet the parent, <laughs> they were concerned, well, I don't want to give him the money directly just in case a gold digger comes along and gets our gets our portion. Wow. Which, at the end of the day, is probably a minor piece to what yeah. he's going to have in, sure. in total. But uh, so it, it basically, you know, the bottom line is we can't let go, right? Mm-hmm. We can't let go of that, mm. that fear of, of, of losing that asset or seeing that asset disappear no matter how it is relative to somebody else's keep, wealth. Keeping control from the grave. I was, I was just thinking yeah. that, yeah, yeah, yeah really. <laughs> So when you're considering a staggered payout or a staged payout, you must or almost always should include uh, a trust because the money is going to be only partial. It's going to be sitting there for a while and it needs to be invested. And you need to decide, is that going to be um, something that's discretionary trust, meaning that your child has access to some of it or a portion of it, or is it going to be a non-discretionary trust? And so the rule of thumb that people at the high net worth stage were thinking about, if they're under age 30, it's probably going to be a non-discretionary. In other Mm. words, you're going to get this much at 21, this much at 25, and this much at 30. If you're now all of your children are over age 30, and you're still considering a, a staggered payout, so it's going to be you know 35, 40, 45. Then um, it might make sense to be discretionary. And uh, so what we're basically saying then is we're creating a trustee who's going to look over this, look after this money, and that trustee can either be an independent trustee, a third party. So it could be a friend, a relative, a lawyer, a trust company, uh, or it's going to be the child. So the trustee options really are independent trustee or your child who is the beneficiary of it. What happens if you're halfway through this plan and, you know, for example, uh, you've got a a payout at say 25, 35, and then 40, um, but you've lived beyond the first initial, they're they're all older than 25 and they're all older than 30. Does it it still get divided up with the last portion? Like if they were 30, for example, they'd get a portion and then the last one at 40. Yeah. They they would. So we just continue to play out no matter where they were. Exactly. Yeah. And if they're all over 40, for example, they They just get it all. They get it all all in one lump sum. Correct. So the, the idea of the independent trustee, which sort of is a gatekeeper to Mm -hmm. the money, and uh, I think that makes a lot of sense, particularly if you're concerned, is it a stable marriage? Has there been, is there concerns about the viability of the marriage going forward? Uh, or if someone is a spendthrift and really not good at handling money, then that independent trustee is going to be the gatekeeper. It'll help them manage their finances, but it also is the, 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 the stop to right. make sure no other uh, third party or mm. you know, an, an ex-spouse is going to try and get at this money as well. And... Um, the other, the other category for high net worth estate planning is vacation properties and cottages. So, um, and this is where it gets tricky with children and your family, and there's lots of memories and emotions around vacation properties. And this is where you think with fair, is something that's fair, is it equal? Is that going to be okay? But it doesn't work out. Hmm. And this is key that you, any distribution mm-hmm. from your estate that isn't a hundred percent equal is automatically going to be seen as uh, as not fair. 
mm. by your children. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and that is, and those are findings that we get from lawyers, estate lawyers, in dealing with the post-settlement of right. an estate, where somebody thinks, oh, I'll give this to somebody else, right. and somebody else gets this and this, then uh, and it's, not it's, fair. it's always considered to be unfair, and your, parent, and your children are not going to be happy. So what happens in situations like that? Because there is no control mm-hmm. or recourse for the kids, Yeah, is this, there? you know, so one thing might be, let's say somebody has a lot of personal items. Uh, so there's property, that's one mm-hmm. issue, and we'll talk more about that. But if you had a lot of personal items, a lot of times what people will do is they'll say, everybody will get their share of the estate, uh, and then you'll use your share of the estate to notionally buy from the estate, the items that you want. Hmm. And we'll do a, we'll, we'll do a reverse order list. So you, if there's four children, it goes one, two, three, four, and then four, three, two, one. Hmm. And everybody gets to, to purchase yeah. the things from the estate that they want. And, uh, and that way you can put a value to certain things. And you but that change the, changes the tone once you put a value on it. It does. I'm like, oh, I don't want to pay for it, but I'll take it for free. <laughs> exactly. So, um, one thing that with respect to vacation properties and cottages is that we do not recommend is adding a joint owner to the property. Uh, I guess the only time that might make sense is if you're planning to sell the property of the child you know, and you're no longer going to be using it at all. But I tell you, there's a lot of regrets that happened when accounts or properties are put into joint ownership, particularly if there's a marital breakdown or creditor concerns, and now suddenly the cottage is lost because yeah. because of uh, creditors coming after it, mm-hmm. or breakdown of a marriage and the cottage has to be sold to pay off an ex-spouse. Mm. So not a great not a great solution in many ways. And, and one of the things that, um, uh, that parents or we find clients are considering is they're not quite sure how to equalize things. And, and, a, and a scenario might be where they've got, let's say a $2 million estate and three children and the cottage is worth 600 grand. So the thought process in their head might be, well, we'll give the cottage to the one child who's, who's mostly interested in, and we think would, would, would want it. And that works out because it's kind of a third and the other two will, will, will get their share. Well, the problem is they're not always very, very few times do people take into consideration the taxation owed in their estate. So Mm -hmm. what is the net estate after tax? And so in this example, if the net estate after tax is less than 1.8 million, then that means the child who got the cottage is going to have to come up with some cash Mm. to buy out the other two or pay off the other two in order to equalize the estate. And, um, and, and then even then it may be considered a big emotional decision anyway. Is it fair? Did they get it? Why did they get it? Et cetera. So, um, so a lot of times then people will resort to just co-ownership. So we'll leave the money to all three kids. We'll let them, they'll be happy, they'll live happily ever after sharing the cottage together and all the chores and work that goes along with cottages. But, uh, I tell you, it's always a booby trap, right? Mm -hmm. You, You can't tell me that three siblings and their their children their and families, their spouses yeah. and their families aren't going to run into problems maintaining a cottage and mm-hmm. working with the all this stuff that has to be done with a cottage over the course of their life. So uh, a lot of times the uh, uh, our lawyers would recommend a mandatory co-ownership agreement. And the co-ownership, co-ownership agreement will spell out the roles and responsibilities, um, any recourse that might happen, uh, you know, how much has to be put in from a, from a financially funding standpoint. So it lists all these things and it tries to eliminate, although it never completely can, any sort of conflicts that mm-hmm. are going to occur as a result of uh, somebody not pulling their weight. And 
Uh, and again, we talked about this. You know, one thing is people will leave, well, I'll leave that uh, rental property to one child because they've been good at managing that or I'll leave this cottage to somebody mm-hmm. else. And generally, um, we don't like the idea of making specific gifts in the will. And the reality is for high net worth clients, many times those properties get transferred to a holding company. So the holding company ends up owning that and at death, it's not even part of that person's estate. Right. It's owned by a corporation. Uh, or properties get sold. You know, a rental property gets sold somewhere along the way. They need the money to finance or do something else. So you've listed a specific item. It may be gone by the time the estate is settled. And, um, you know, then the next question we hear from high net worth clients on estate planning is how do I minimize tax at death? Right. I I can see how much tax we have to pay. I know there's probate tax, et cetera. These are all things that Mm -hmm. I'm motivated. How do I solve the problem? Mm -hmm. I mean, the three main things that are, people will use at death is a a spousal rollover where money can transfer between spouses tax-free, the principal residence exemption, and that has some limitations because if you have multiple properties, it can only apply to one. And of course, charitable giving. And, um, so uh, taxation at death, I think the key thing often is insurance as a solution. So we know we will determine what the tax will be. Can we build in an insurance solution or a life insurance policy that would pay enough to the estate to cover a lot of the tax? Right. And that there might be an efficient way to do that as well. Um, the next thing that high net worth clients are interested in is how do I get money to the next generation? and often the grandkids, right? I want to get money into the grandkids' hands. And we, again, generally don't like that idea. It's better just to leave the money to the next generation directly. And uh, so I'll give you an example. We had a a situation where there was a $900,000 estate, and we determined that there was about $200,000 of taxes owing, which left $700,000. Well, the grandparents wanted to leave. They had nine grandchildren. Uh, they wanted to leave 50 in their will. They said they wanted to leave 50,000 to each grandchild. Mm. So right away there was 450 grand of the 350,000 estate going to the grandkids. Well, as we look deeper, there were three sons. Son number one had no children. Son number two had one child and son number three had eight. So so one son was getting 400 grand. And imagine the son who hadn't had any yeah. children yet. He goes, darn, if you don't, if you die before I have a kid, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't get any part of that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, problematic, uh, leaving money for, leaving money directly to um, grandchildren is a, is a real trap. Uh, you have to make sure that trusts are created for all of them. So bottom line is never designate a minor as a direct beneficiary. I said that before, but it is key. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and even ask a question via the listener inquiry box. Talking about high net worth estate planning. Yeah, and so we just we were talking about um, gifting to grandchildren, the next generation. Another key, another key area that we get asked from high net worth clients and their estate side of it is, what about gifting? Should I gift now during my lifetime? Does that make sense? And um, you know, in a common scenario, might be uh, a, a gift for a house purchase, so a new a new wedding, or sorry, a newly married family member. And, and sorry, and sorry to jump ahead yeah. here, but 
Is this the best way to do it as far as making your dreams come true? And by that, I mean making sure that, you know, you have people getting the money who you want. Is it better to do it before your death than after? Well, there's a, there's a key, there's key to create an estate plan is absolutely essential to do before death. Right. And, um, and. But if you've got. An extra hundred, two hundred, three hundred, five hundred thousand dollars, yeah. and you know eventually it's going to go through a will. If yes. you've got the cash now, is it better to give it to your kids ahead of time than wait till? Yeah, and this this is exactly this is exactly what this high net worth group were asking us, and um, and and the and the lawyers on both sides, we sort of looked at this and said, you know, if you're gifting under the age of forty to someone under the age of forty, there they were less inclined to agree with that. Hmm. But if somebody was, if your children were over age 40 and they're getting more established, then maybe that's a better time to do gifting. So any right. anytime after your children are 40 or older, gifting is a viable option. Right. Uh, under 40, of, there's too many, that's too, too many, many rough variables. spots in yeah. a marriage. There's yeah. too many rough spots in most marriages. If something's going to happen, it yeah. probably happens by then. Yeah. So you think of a lot of the times you're dealing with people over 70 and Quite often, the kids are over forty years old. Right, exactly. right, right. And so, and, and and it's kind of interesting. A lot of those seven-year-olds are the ones that have a, a fair bit of money. Yeah, and they're the ones they got to do the estate planning for. So, yeah, gifting would um, would allow some of the things. And, and, and the biggest thing I find. What is about tax? Is it going to save you tax it, it, to do it that way? It could. It could definitely because now you don't have to pay tax on the income it earns. Right. Yeah. And it also allows the kids to put money into their TFSAs. So right. it continues Shelter to it grow yeah. tax-free. Yeah. Oh, you're assuming they use it for good, not evil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always looking on the bright side, Andy. So no, there's definitely some advantages if you have that money. And the biggest thing I find is the grandparents are saying, well, or parents, I'd rather see them use it while I'm alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I agree. So uh, so in this category, the, the example we were looking at was where um, you've got uh, your, your adult children are getting married and they are looking to buy a home, a matrimonial home, and you're thinking, we're going to gift them 20 grand or, or loan them 20 grand to help with the down payment. But we're concerned that if that marriage breaks down, you know, we want a, a promissory note, we want mm-hmm. to do it as a loan, not a gift. And so what's interesting about that is that when you go to buy a home, and this is important, the couple will have to sign off that the cash they have available for their down payment is their cash only, and there's no expectation that any of it is to be repaid as part of a loan or part of a gift that is to be redone. So so now you've got a young couple, they're buying a home, they've received 20 grand from the parents, and they sign a letter indicating that there's no loan or gift or anything has to be repaid. So now the marriage breaks down. Mom and dad thought, well, we did this as a loan so mm-hmm. that we could get the money back from them. But the court would probably overrule it because they both both spouses signed off indicating that this was in no way to right. have to be repaid and it was just part of their cash. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very tricky for sure. Um, what about small gifts over a uh, longer time? And one example we had was, uh, and I mean, small gifts, you know, at the beginning of a relationship, uh, newly newly married, it's probably a good idea just so you know what the, how that's going to work out. But um, there was a high net worth family that, uh, that were in the, uh, they were in a regular habit of providing 50, they gave $50,000 a year to their son to help support their lifestyle in terms of some private school and some other things that were happening mm-hmm. with the children. Well, lo and behold, 
during the marriage breakdown, the court included the $50,000 as not a gift, but as regular income. And so Hmm. now not only does uh, the son has to pay support. Continue to pay it. Has to pay support based on that $50,000. And here's the real kicker. The court grossed up the 50000 to reflect the fact that it was tax-free. Oh, man. <laughs> so now you had to pay more than that in terms of spousal support. So, of course, how do you think the parents felt about that? Yeah, right? really. Not only this, but it, we've increased the amount that has to be paid to an ex-spouse. And um, huh. the next category is about leaving a legacy. And for high net worth clients, you know, having money, uh, yes, giving money to your children, your grandchildren is great. But in many cases, they want to do something more above and beyond that and Mm -hmm. leaving a legacy through perhaps a charitable foundation or giving money directly to a church, et cetera. So one of the things that that, um, we really like is is a strategy called um, uh, using a charitable giving fund. And the key thing in this is that you donate money and create your own foundation. And now your children can be involved in that legacy in terms of making ongoing decisions every year after your death Mm -hmm. about where that money goes. And basically, you're creating an endowment where money is going to be paid out as you see fit or as your children see fit for, for in fact, a lifetime. Yeah. And um, the final area, and this is a trip and tra- uh, tips and traps, is common law relationships. Many high net worth clients um, are finding themselves in a second marriage, in uh, living common law, and depending on which jurisdiction you live in, you might be considered married. So let's say you, you started off a common law relationship in here in Ontario, but if you move to BC for retirement, you're considered married. So mm. everything is now 50-50 yeah. in that new jurisdiction. Wow. And a lot of people don't even think about that as well. So a lot of uh, a lot of issues to be done around uh, estate planning. And uh, again, Don and I are more than happy to help. There's um, a, a wealth of information for high net worth clients. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc., we're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. You can listen to old shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Talking about the resilience of dividends. Yes. The uh, cash payment from corporations to their short shareholders is an income stream which has for the last six decades and longer grown at a very significant premium to inflation. So this cash payment is from, say, you own shares of Royal Bank, as an example, mm-hmm. and you get a quarterly dividend. Well, a dividend qualifies for the dividend tax credit. And if your income is under 40000 a year, basically it's tax-free. Mm-hmm. You get a dividend tax credit and you don't have to pay any income tax on it. Now, the interesting thing here is if you do see anything that is interest, it means it's a sign of a loan. So a GIC is a loan. If you're getting a bond from the government of Canada, it's a loan. You've lent money to the government. This is own ownership of a stock or a share, and you're getting this income stream. And it's, and it's been very reliable. In fact, all this data I'm going to say is from the U.S. Canadian dividends have actually been even more stable. Mm-hmm. Okay, So the Standard, Standard um, Poor's 500 grew, index grew from $1.98 to <laughs> back in 1960, to $49 in income, it's a compound growth rate of 5.76. So I'm looking at this chart here, and the Standard & Poor's Index was $58.11, or 58.11, call it. That was the index. Now, Scott, what, what year were you born? Were 62? 62. 62. 62. 
it was 63.1 was the index at that time. I'm a 63 person born. So the index was at 75. So as you can see, the index has been slowly growing. Similar to the Toronto stock market here, the index is up X amount. Mm -hmm. Just out of curiosity, what do you think the Standard Poor's 500 index was at the end of 2017? Andy. <laughs> 5,000? Yeah, 2,673. Okay. So here you are in 1962, and if your your dad says, you know what, I'm going to just, here, here, son, I'm putting $1,000 in um, the Standard Poor's 500 in 1962. It has grown 35 times that. It'd be worth $35,000 today. Hmm. So it works out to about a, a growth rate of 9% per year. Well, that's the index. That does not include the dividends it pays. So the dividends have been very steady and they have actually been growing. And so back in 1962, the dividend rate was uh, 3.4. And it's covered around three, it has hit five. Um, lately, it's been around two, okay, 2%. So a pretty good rate. Now the Canadian dividends are a little higher. They're, they're more around 3% are the dividends. Banks are about four. So they're all, they're all very, but again, very stable. And what I like about dividends is it's kind of like a rental property with no tenants. You own this house, call it a share of Royal Bank, mm -hmm. and it pays you a quarterly dividend. It doesn't matter if, if you, know, you get no phone calls in the middle of the night saying the plumbing doesn't work, the hydro doesn't work, you're getting this quarterly dividend and they rarely miss a beat, okay? And it doesn't matter what the house does. So when you own a house and, and the house goes up in value by 20%, you still get the same rent. If the house goes down by 20%, you still get the same rent. Right. Very similar to a share that pays a dividend. Really, who cares about the price going up and down? Because most of the people wanting dividends want the income. They need the income to live on it. And we have, I said, this investors group dividend fund's been around since 1963, has averaged over 7% a year. And it's just a steady performer of dividends. Why wouldn't everybody have a dividend fund that pays them? Why wouldn't everybody have that? Well, good question. Yeah, like, right, you know, if you've got RSPs, if you've got this, that, and the other, why would you not have something that continually pays you something as opposed to stashing it away and waiting to cash it in? Well, the dividend is, uh, is taxable if it's outside of your RSP. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're making over 40000 a year, you are paying some tax on it. Mm -hmm. But it is still very good for that conservative investor for part of your RSP, for example. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pay tax on that. Right. Or the TFSA, very popular place for our dividend fund in the TFSA or a dividend producing area. But the neat thing is inflation has grown at 3% a year since 1960. The dividend rate has grown at 576 so had you've got a GIC, GICs rarely outperform inflation, but even if they do, so right now inflation is running 2.2. Well, you're getting some GICs running around 2.2. They're taxable as, uh, as interest. So you're paying full tax on it. But even if, like you're saying, let's say it's in your RSP. Well, you're not paying tax on it yet or a TFSA. You're basically just keeping, keeping up with inflation. Dividends are almost doubling the growth rate of inflation. So you're actually getting little raises over and above inflation. So if you're getting your dividends consistently paid quarterly, at least you know, hey, I'm getting a bit of a raise. Mm -hmm. and, and about once a year, the companies say, well, we're keeping the, in, the dividend the same or we're going to increase it. Now, there is times, particularly in the U.S., where the dividend drops. And the last little bit was one of those times where the dividend dropped from $28 
down to $22 as far as this S&P 500. So it worked out to a dividend drop of about 20%. No fun. If you're getting 1000 a 1000 a quarter, now you're getting 800 a quarter. Nobody mm. likes a drop. But it's a heck of a lot better than the 57% drop that the stock market did. Mm. So the stock market dropped 57%, well, the dividend only dropped by 20. And it was very fast to come right back up. So I looked back here and the dividend rate, um, it went from, it, it headed up very quickly. After it went to 22, by 2011 it was 26, by 2012 it was 30, 34, 39, and by 2017, $49. So it had, it actually, the dividend practically doubled, <coughs> actually did more than double in that period of nine years. So I know there's gonna still be some fluctuations, but dividends are very resilient, and, and you can count on them for the long term. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now and leave a message at 905-529-7165. And don't forget about the website, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll see you next Thanks, week. Thanks, Scott.